It's an interesting time of the year. We're about to enter into the month of Adar. And Adar is actually the last month of the year. It's the twelfth month of the year. So we're getting we're getting right to the end. And um, there's a very interesting interrelationship between Adar and the month that follows, which is the first month of the year, which is the, the month of Nisan. Uh, Nisan has the word Nes in it. Nes means miracles. And appropriately, it's the headquarters of uh, Pesach, um, where we leave Egypt and amidst all of the miracles and the signs and the wonders. So, so, so imagine... Imagine this, uh, you have Adar, which is sort of the darkness before the, the open light. And um, you see how the, the holidays that fall into these two months relate to this, this type of theme. Um, if Nisan is, is, is the light openly exposed, and one indication of this, we often talk about the the tzrufim, the um, the permutations of the the name of Hashem, the Yudke Vavke. How each month has a different combination of the letters. Well, the combination for Nisan is Yud followed by Hey, followed followed by Vav, followed by Hey. In other words, it's the name of Hashem straight Yud Hey Vav Hey. There's no there's no twisting around in it. It's it's openly revealed. All the other months have a different permutation of the name itself. But Nisan, indicating the openness of the revelation of godliness, there's no permutation in the, in, the, in the letters. It's just the straight revelation. Whereas Adar, the month that precedes it, it's, the, it's really it's the darkest time. And, and so it makes sense that the holiday that falls in Adar is Purim. Purim is all about how you can't see Hashem at all. And yet in the end... Hashem saves you, and when you look back on it, you realize Hashem was there the entire time. The best indication of this is the word, is the story of the Megillah itself. Megillah means Megala. It has the word, um, it, it means to reveal. You have to reveal that which is hidden. So it's all about hiddenness. If you imagine a, a light, if, if Nisan a nace is also a banner. A banner is something that's held high, can be seen by everyone. Nisan is the first month of the year. Miracles, clear revelation, a banner that's held high. Adar is the furthest point in time away from that open revelation. It's a place of darkness where Hashem's name is not mentioned in the Megillah at all. It's concealed. It's the farthest point away. And yet... What's the amazing aspect of this? If you think in a very linear way, well then you're very, very far away. Right? But what's the, what's the amazing dynamic here? Is that when you're that, that far away, what happens? You take one more step and you're back in Nissan. You're back in Nissan. And in fact, in order to connect these two things, the Chachamim, the sages, we're very particular because we have, uh, we have this interesting phenomena, which is that we have leap years in the Jewish calendar. Every several years, we add another month. Now, technically speaking, you could any, any month of the year could be added. You just need to add a 13th month every so often. 
And yet the sages said, no, the month that we're going to double up, it's always going to be the same month, and it's going to be Adar. Now, if you think about that, it's, 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 it's really interesting, because Adar is the month of joy. It's the month of joy. You know, it's strange, because I would think my greatest joy... Let's put it this way. Hey, I'm planning a birthday party. I really hope you can all come. I'm sending out invitations. I hope you all show up. And then you come to your birthday party and then, you know, people come and then you have the party. Okay? But how about, how about this? That's one level of joy. How about this level of joy? Everyone forgot my birthday. <laughs> No one remembers anything. Uh, you get a phone call. Oh, you know, um, my uh, my car broke down. Can you? Uh, and I've got you got some cables. You can give me a jump start. Uh, you know what? I'm upstairs. Can you just meet me upstairs? Surprise! <laughs> Everyone jumps out. It's a huge party. I thought everybody forgot all about me. No, no, no one forgot about you. They were all planning this huge party for you. That's, that's, the, that's the joy of Adar. It's, it's a deeper level of joy because, because part of the human condition, one of the things that just comes with being a human being is, is the thought that naggingly reoccurs at you that you've been forgotten. That Hashem has forgotten about you. That other people have forgotten about you. And, um, and it's not the case. It's not the case. So here's this incredible reminder. The Purim story, which comes in Adar, which comes amidst the darkness. This unbelievable reminder that Hashem is there the entire time and that He hasn't forgotten about us. So any month of the entire year, we said theoretically, could be doubled up in order to fix the calendar, to make sure that it works. So what month does God double up? The month of Adar. And the way I heard um, Reb Sam and Trader put it, that the greatest, the greatest tool for fixing is joy. So when Hashem wants to fix the calendar itself, what month does He take? He takes the month of joy. Because through joy you can achieve the greatest fixing. I heard um, Rabbi Fleer say in the name of Reb Nossin, um, uh of Reslov, who wrote down all the Torahs of Rebbe Nachman, that technically speaking, just in terms of strict technicalities here, one could keep the Torah without being joyful at all. In other words, you do this mitzvah, ah, I got to do this mitzvah, ah, I did it, okay. Then I got this mitzvah, ah, I got to do that one too, okay, I did it. So one could theoretically go through life like this. So, so, so obviously we know in our hearts this, this approach doesn't work. But let's, let's go a little bit deeper. Because there's a way out of it. And let's go to the source. So yesterday we read Parshish Mishpatim. And, uh, 
the way the way it works out, I heard from Reb Shlomo. This is coming right after the. This is the parsha, the portion in the Torah that we have right after, right after the the Torah is revealed in Parshas Yisro. So we just got the Torah. So what happens? So I heard from Reb Shlomo. Everyone went back to their tent, made kiddush, because the Torah was given at dawn on Shabbos Shabbos day. So everyone went back to their tent after the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai, made Kiddush, and then started learning the, the Torah, the halachas. So the first halacha, the first mitzvah that we have, it's in the next parsha, Parsha's Mishpatim, which we just read. It's about the laws of a Hebrew slave, a Jewish slave. So this in itself is, is, is quite um, mind-bending, because of all of the Laws to learn after the Torah has been revealed. You're learning about the Hebrew slave. It's 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 a it's it's odd. It's an odd choice. Let's just put it that way. So, on a very very deep level, I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Zohar the following. You see, after after we received the Torah at Mount Sinai, we reached the level of Adam Harishon before he ate from the tree of knowledge. We were in that state where we basically were right on the threshold of perfecting the entire world again. We were right, we were right there, basically. And what was the chet, what was the mistake? See, you know, it's important to say, actually heard it said, very clearly by Rabbi Aaron, he said very beautifully, said that chet is translated in English as sin. This is a non-Jewish word. Sin is not a Jewish word. See, it's very important to emphasize that because, because what happens is, because we're living in an alien culture right now, we're living in a friendly country, thank God, but it's not, this is not, this is an alien culture. We have to appreciate the fact that this is a foreign land. Even if you've been born and raised in America or in Western civilization, this is a foreign land. And, and you are a foreigner. That's, that's, that's very, very important to understand. English, you see, you can't really translate the Torah. And when the Torah was translated, it says it was like a lion being put into a cage. When I say you can't translate the Torah, I'm not saying that it's, um, it's against the Torah to translate the Torah. What I'm saying is, is that you won't have an effective one-to-one correspondence. You'll have something different. You'll have something similar, or many of the ideas hopefully will come across, but it's not the Torah. It's not the Torah. But it goes further than that, which is, which is that when the Torah was first translated into Greek, into a book called the Septuagint, that we commemorate the translating of the Torah every day, or rather every year, on the 10th of the month of Teves, and we actually fast. To this day, we fast over the fact that the Torah was translated. Why? Why is it compared to a lion being put into a cage? Because when you translate the Torah into another language, you have to take words and make them fit the Torah. But they don't fit the Torah. They change the Torah. 
and it becomes an overlay of an alien philosophy onto the Torah. Because when you use certain words, they trigger certain associations. You see, my father, during his 50 years of um, psychological practice, was an amazing communicator. Olav Shalom. And one of the things that he did was, whenever he reached a key word in a sentence, he would use five different words for that, for that thing before he'd go on to the next sentence. He would say, whatever it is, I'm just making this up. I see you're, you're, you're tired. You're frustrated. You're exhausted. You haven't had much sleep. You know, you're worn down. And one of those words would hit the spot. He would communicate what he meant. The per- because if, if, you were, if you were seven years old and someone used the word like, you know, the, 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 the old joke about the person who has, a, um, has an irrational fear of kreplach. Kreplach are like, uh, they're like Jewish, Jewish wontons. Okay? So they have a little meat inside and, and a little dough around it and then you put it in soup. Kinedalach, they're also called. So, so, so a little Jewish boy had a panic attack whenever he saw Kreplach. <laughs> so the, the doctor tells his mother, show him the process how Kreplach are made, and then when it's demystified, when he sees what it is, he will no longer have this irrational attachment to Kreplach. So she takes the doctor's advice, she goes to the supermarket, she buys flour, she buys whatever spices go in, she buys the ground beef, she comes home, she says to the son, are you okay? He says, I'm fine. She rolls out the dough, she says, are you fine? He says, yes. She puts the beef in the middle of the dough, she says, are you okay? He says, yes. She folds one corner, folds another corner, folds the third corner, she says, are you okay? He says, fine. And now she folds the fourth corner. He says, Kreplach! <laughs> <laughs> so, so, <laughs> people have certain irrational fears that can't necessarily be walked through. They're just deeper. So people have certain attachments to certain words. Certain words press people's buttons. And when you translate the Torah, you're going to use some of those words. And then people are going to be stressed out because of the English words. Not necessarily because of the Torah concept. Give one example, I'll give you the best example. The word sin. Sin is not a Jewish word. Chet means to miss. It means to miss the mark. Now, I'll give you an example, and this was Rabbi Aaron's example, that in, in modern-day Hebrew, when, you, when you're playing soccer, and someone kicks the ball, and the ball goes wide of the goal, they yell, Chet! Now, you don't have to do tshuva, you don't have to go to, you know, Ay! <laughs> Look what I did, I'm such a lowlife, I... I missed the goal. No, you, it's, you just missed the mark. It means you did a little too little or you did a little too much. 
You see, that's when people make mistakes. They either, they don't, they didn't quite put in enough of the effort they needed, or maybe they just shot past it. They just didn't quite get it right on. And, and then, and, and that of course can be fixed. So, so we fast for that. So, but the, the point is, the point is, is that, um, Well, we're about um, five digressions in at this point, so <laughs> I need a, need a roadmap to get back to the original thought. But, um, ah, okay, I have it. So when, when Adam Arishon ate from the, from the tree of knowledge, okay, so let's reconstruct, because if I lost it, I, <laughs> you're probably scratching your heads too. Let's get back to this. So why is the first mitzvah that we're learning after the Torah was given about the, 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 the laws of, of, of the Jewish slave, the Evidivri? Okay, so now listen to this on a very, very deep level. Remember, we said that after the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, we were like, we were right really on the threshold of affixing the entire world, okay? So when... When Adam HaRishon ate from the tree, they have to understand something. The, the classic case of the Hebrew slave is someone who stole and who can't repay. He stole and he can't repay his debt. So he goes into an indentured work program. It's almost like, so to speak, you know, you ate at a restaurant and you forgot your wallet. So you go in the kitchen and you do the dishes, right? You work off the bill. So the Hebrew slave, he can't repay, so he goes back into a work, an indentured work situation where he can now repay whatever was owed. Okay? When Adam HaRishon was told not to eat from the tree of knowledge, and he ate, he stole. That was theft. That was theft. And so now look how interesting it is the first halacha is we're going back, the first mitzvah is we're going back and we're learning about the one who stole and is now able to repay. Okay? How do you repay? How do you fix that final aspect of the chet, of the mistake, not the sin, not the sin. You get a whole other religion off that word. Off the, off the mistake of Adam Harisha. Of the, he missed. He missed the mark. Okay. It says in the Gomorrah that if someone eats food without making a blessing first, it's like stealing from God. And they've got two psukim, two verses from the Torah that are contradictory. One verse says that God says, the whole world is mine. And another verse says that God gave the world to man. So how does it work? Is the whole world God's or did he give it to man? So the answer is, the Chachamim said, the whole world is God's, but if you make a blessing on the food, then he gives it to you. Okay? So you get it, but it's stolen. You do get it. You do get it, but it's stolen. It says in the Gomorrah, in Gomorrah Brachas. So, um, 
So, so now, so Rabbi Fleer was saying that uh, there's a, a teaching that says that Hashem is sitting in heaven and He's laughing. Okay, we're talking about repaying debts. Now, the word, the word, um, you're, uh, you have a chiyuv, we, we say like in, in the Shulchan Aruch, a person has a, a chiyuv means he has a, um, a Torah obligation to perform a certain action. That's chiyuv. But, but chiyuv comes from the word chov. Chov means debt. In other words, one must, one through one's actions, by keeping the mitzvahs, one is repaying debts to God. But how do you ever get out of that relationship of repaying debts to God? So it says God is laughing in heaven. Why is God laughing? Because people say, um, well, I have a house, so I have a debt to God. What's my, what's my chiyuv? What's my obligation, which is a chov, my debt? Well, if I have a house, I have to put a, mitz- I have to put a mezuzah on the doorpost. I have to, that's how I, re- that's how, that's my obligation. But the, so I've repaid my debt, but what's the, what's the joke? Why is God laughing? Because who gave you the house? <laughs> God gave you the house. You have, you have to put tzitzis, if you have a four-cornered garment, right? You have to put tzitzis on, the, on one of the four corners, right? But who gave you the garment? So in other words, you still have the, you, maybe you repaid the debt on the mezuzah level, on the, on the, on the garment level, but, but what about, how do you repay from the garment to begin with? How do you, how do you pay for the house to begin with? In other words, in other words, it spirals out, it spirals out, it spirals out. You, you can never repay God for all of His kindness. But now listen to this. Now we get back to Reb Nosson, who wrote down the Torahs of Rebbe Nachman. He says the following. Now remember, Adar is the month of joy. Okay? So he says that, technically speaking, you can do mitzvahs and fulfill your obligation without being joyous at all. Ah, but if you add the element of joy, then you're actually giving something back to God. See, before you're in this endless debt-repaying, debt-repaying, debt-repaying mode. But if you do mitzvahs with joy, then you're able to transcend that simple basic relationship and you're actually able to give something back to God through joy. This is the greatness of joy. The greatness of simcha is that it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's the vehicle through which we're able to add and give back to God. Not just through, ah, oh, I have a mitzvah, I did the mitzvah. Okay, so that's good. So, so God's the bank and you're the, 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 the you know, the, the loner. But, say it again. Ah, so doesn't God give you joy? Yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess he gives you joy too. But, um, but I guess the implementation of joy is something which comes so much from our essence that it's, it's in a different category. In other words, to, you can't, you can't really fake joy. Although, a lot of people, um, will tell you to fake it because that will trigger real joy later. You know, there's this concept, act as if, that sometimes if you just sort of like uh, mirror a certain um, personality trait, that, that it will actually trigger it within yourself. 
an interesting example of that is that um, when a person frowns, and I'm making up this number, but it's something like there's 17 different muscles in one's face that one has to exercise when they frown. And it basically physically stresses you out to frown. And when you smile, it's only two muscles. So there's like, just physically speaking, there's a relief in smiling. And the smile itself actually triggers these happy hormones in your brain. As you can see, I didn't go to medical school. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But but the, the the actual presentation will actually trigger something deeper. But, 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 but joy, because it really is something so beyond, you see, you see, we have, we have, um, we have two types of mitzvahs, or two, two basics, uh, two basic levels of observance in terms of serving God. One is the category of yira, which it means like awe, and the lower aspect of awe is what we call fear. Um, that's another good example of English uh, Torah being badly translated into English, you know. Um, but anyway, the higher level of yira is awe, which means that you're standing in the king's palace, and you're like just like, wow, and your mind is blown, and you don't want to dare disturb anything in the palace. Right? Because it's so perfect and it's so awesome, you know? Um, that's awe. And these are called the two wings of the dove. And what, what gives us flight. The, the other wing is ava, love. Okay? And the Rebbe saying, so the Chernobler said it, but, but, but I'm sure everyone says it. It's actually a very humbling aspect that, that until one reaches Yirashamayim, which is this level of awe, which is like the, the greatness of God and how you, you're a guest in this world, essentially, and that everything you have is from the king and everything like that, until you have this recognition of Yira, that your love of God isn't a true love of God. That, that actually real Havas Hashem, real love of God, comes after the recognition of Yirashamayim. That's, that's, that's sort of... Um, Growing up in, in today's society, that's a little counterintuitive. You would think that, first I love God, and we've got this incredible closeness, and then I come to see His awesomeness. It's actually classically the other way around, which is, which is something to think about. So if one really wants to get to real love of God, in a very practical sense, one might take some time to try to harness and to develop their yirashamayim, their, their notion of really... God's awesomeness and absolute greatness. And then love will be a deeper love that, that, that follows on the heels of that. Um, but anyway, I want to get back to this, this notion, this incredible notion that, um, that on the calendar, when we, want to, when we want to fix the calendar, we fix through joy. When we want to fix time, we fix through joy. You know? Time, time can be, you know, it, it, it's, you know, there's a joke about the Jewish holidays that um, when we talk about, you know, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, they're never on time. They're early, early this year or late this year, right? <laughs> they're never on time. Ta- time itself 
always is seeming, it's either going too slowly or it's going too quickly. <laughs> like, like I never heard anyone say, wow, that 24 hours was really 24 hours. It was exact, it was just exact. It was so good how exact it was. It was either, what a day, or we have to say goodbye already. You know, it, it seems like it's always one or the other. But the way to the way to really fix time, everyone knows that that time is best when you're when you're in this state of gratitude, when you're in this state of joy. So we fix time by doubling up the month of Adar, the month of joy. And that makes the calendar that makes the calendar right. What's interesting also is that excuse me, in Adar Adar, it looks like Hashem isn't there. We said it was the furthest, in a linear sense, the furthest distance from the month of Nisan, of the open revelation of Hashem's miracles, of Pesach, right? Getting out of Egypt with all sorts of signs and wonders. And yet, as soon as you see Hashem in the darkness, then you're one step away from only seeing Hashem. You know, once your eyes get opened, then you see that not only was he there the whole time, but he's the only thing that is there. You know, like I heard Rabbi Green say that basically God is the only thing that's going on. That's the only thing that's happening in the world is God. Right? Everything else is, well, whatever it is. But God is going on 24-7. It's only God. Every one of our circumstances is just an interface with God. It's just a way to connect with God. And one of the nice kavanas, one of the kind of holy things you can have in mind is when you're saying the Shema Yisrael, and you're saying, you know, you cover your eyes, you close your eyes, say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, and you stretch out that last dalad, and you can just like, be thinking of all of the things that are going on in your life. Every person in your life, every situation that's going on in your life, everything like that is just an interface between you and God. And if you do that, you'll be able to fill all of the situations in your life and, and, and especially many of the frustrating situations in your life with Hashem's presence. And you realize, you know what? This is just another opportunity to, to connect with God. God wants me to, in, to connect with God right now. God wants me to connect with Him through this person, through this situation, through this situation. And the sort of the headquarters of filling your mind and your heart with this level of recognition is when you say Shema. That's, that's just, just turn it into a meditation, you know? It doesn't have to be that long. Your mind works very quickly. You can do a quick scan of your present situation. You know, you can get a lot in, in that moment. Um, okay, I want to make a, a bit of a transition right now. Um, there's something that I was learning. I'm learning the laws of uh, uh, milk and meat right now, Basra Chalav, and uh, had sort of a, an insight that I want to share with you. You know, uh, I guess you can hopefully um, appreciate this on a few different levels, but one level that I'd ask you to appreciate it on is how even the most particular aspects and most detailed aspects of halacha that sound perhaps 
very, very not spiritual, are filled with wondrous, wondrous connections. And, and so let me start with the technical level. Just take a couple of minutes, and if you concentrate, you'll get it for sure. And then you'll see how it just blossoms out into, into something that relates to us. Okay? So we can't cook milk with meat. And on the most basic level, it's a, it's a very interesting combination because once you cook milk with meat, it, uh, it, it, it really becomes like toxic. If that, if that food then gets in touch with other foods, then it just messes, it's like a chain reaction. It messes everything up. And the, the laws are detailed, and, and you have to talk to a rabbi about the situations and things like that. But let's just learn it on the most basic level right now. So, so now listen to this. If you have, if you have uh, milk that comes into contact with meat, and the piece of meat is very, very small, okay? Now, we have this, we have this category, this halacha category, called something that's re'ui lishaved. Sorry, it's a bit of a tongue twister for me. That means it's fit for for to be presented in an honorable way. In other words, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a gazunta slice of meat. Let's say <laughs> you can give it to a guest, and this is like a, you know like that's a, like a nice piece of meat. Okay, so if you have if you have a nice piece of meat, so to speak, the 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 laws get a little bit strict with that type of thing. Now let me give you an example. Okay. If you have a drop of milk, okay, and the drop of milk falls into this piece of meat, if you have 60 times the meat versus the milk, in other words, the piece of meat is 60 times the drop of milk or more, then there's no problem. That's called bato bashishim. Okay, it gets nullified, and it's like, it's like, it's like nothing happened bad at all. Okay? Now, what happens if the drop of milk falls into this piece, or, or maybe it's a lot of milk that falls into this gazunta piece of meat, this big piece of meat, and you don't have 60 times the meat to the milk, okay? So now this piece of meat, it's, no, it's, it's like no good. You've got milk and meat together in there. The piece of meat is no good. Now, what happens if you have that piece of meat and you have it in a pot full of big pieces of meat? And you don't know which piece of meat is the meat that had the milk on it. <laughs> now, normally speaking, if you had 60 pieces of meat, big pieces of meat, versus that one piece of meat that you didn't know which one got kind of all messed up, normally speaking, you'd say, okay, and we'll say, okay, we don't know which one is the piece of meat, but it all gets spread out and they're all good. But when you have a big piece of meat, this law of Batal Bashishim doesn't work. And since you don't know which piece of meat is the negative piece of meat, you have to throw out all the pieces of meat. Batal Bashishim does not work. It doesn't become nullified in 60. Okay. So you see how strict this can be. But now let's go to the opposite extreme. What happens if you have a little baby piece of meat? <laughs> a piece of meat that's not fit to be served to a guest. Okay? And now we're getting into the case that we want. 
Now listen to how it almost goes to the opposite extreme. If you have a little piece of meat that got some milk in it, and that little piece of meat did not have 60 times the amount of meat versus the milk that got into it, just a little piece of meat, and it's got a bunch of milk in it, and now you have two other pieces of meat that are kosher and haven't been affected, and they get cooked together, you can even eat that initial piece of meat that had the milk cooked in it. Okay, so how does that work? We just learned this whole thing that you need 60 against it, and now we have something called batal barov. All you need is a majority, two against one, and it's this little piece of meat, but somehow you can even eat that piece of meat itself. How could that be? And you can look it up. It's the bear Hetev, and I'm going to give you the Bade Shulchan's explanation of how that works. Okay? So, it seems like now I can even eat that piece of meat that had the milk in it. Okay, so now listen to how it works. And by the way, we're going to, um, we're going to connect this to the resurrection of the dead at the end of days very soon. So just to give you a preview of coming of traction, where we're going to be in about 30 seconds. <laughs> so, so, so uh, here's what happens. Here's how it's explained. That little piece of meat that got the that got the milk absorbed in it, when it gets cooked, it spits out the milk. That always happens. That's called being pullet. It always spits out the milk. Okay? Now, initially, when the milk fell into that piece of meat, there wasn't 60 times the meat versus the milk. That's what we said. But after it gets cooked, it spits out the milk, and now there's only a little bit of milk left in it. And now there is 60 times the meat versus the milk. And that's why we have a very rare thing in halacha, a recount. (laughs) We go back to that piece of meat and we say, now it's okay. Now you can't do this in a large piece of meat, but in a little tiny piece of meat you can do it. Okay, now listen to this. There are basically three judgments over the course of a person's lifetime. There's the judgment every Rosh Hashanah, right? What you're doing right, what you're still working on. Then you've got the judgment that happens at the end of 120. Your lifetime, what did you do in this world, right? Your whole life. And then there's a third judgment that takes place by the time of the resurrection of the dead, the Tachiyas HaMesim. Then, listen to this, this is very, very strong. It's not just your actions that you did during your lifetime, but Hashem shows you the repercussion of your actions throughout all of the generations until Mashiach comes. And there's a new account. There's a recount. There's a recount that's done. Now, what is a person called? A person is called Basar. That's meat. That's meat. What's milk? Milk is chesed. Milk is kindness. Because it says in the Gemara that if you don't have money to give to someone, you have to at least, on the most basic level of tzedakah, of charity, you have to at least smile at them. Because it says the white of your teeth will nourish them like milk. And of course we know the primary example of kindness is a mother's milk. 
right? That that sustains, it gives life, sustains. So, so look at what happens. At the at the end of days, we revisit the basar. We revisit the the person. And we reevaluate it because that person has shot out this chesed. And we get to see how that chesed has influenced the succeeding generations. And because it spit out that chesed, because a person has performed that chesed, and it's spread throughout the community over time, it's all traced back to that person. So now listen, I'll just tell you something. Someone came up to me after shul yesterday. We'll just end with this. And he said to me, you know, I want to tell you something. A while back, a few years ago, you held up a book, Holy Brother. It's a wonderful book about the life of Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach. It's first-person accounts of uh, just like they're all two, three pages long. Amazing stories. And anyone who knew Rabbi Shlomo, and I had the privilege to know him, knows that this is just the tip of the iceberg. If you read this book, it's not a long book. If you read this book, you, you can't imagine how one person could have done all of these things. It seems like you would have to live five lifetimes to do all these things. This book is the tip of the iceberg of what he did. So he said, he said, you said a few years ago you were at some talk, you held up this book, you said everyone has to go out and buy this book. So this is, he said, so he said, I bought it. He said, and I read it. And he says, a, a while ago, like a couple years ago, I told someone that they should read it and they were to tell their daughter to read it and there was some, whatever it is, she didn't read it, but then, then eventually she did read it and she went to Israel and uh, her experience in Israel wasn't, you know, that inspiring and she decided that she was going to go back to the United States and a friend was encouraging her, no, you know, maybe you just try something else here, you know, this is a great place. And she remembered from reading Holy Brother, oh, the Moshav, Reb Shlomo's Moshav, uh, Modi'in, maybe I'll go there, I'll spend a Shabbos there. So she spent a Shabbos there and she was so inspired, she started learning in the Reb Shlomo Yeshiva in Jerusalem and now she's going to make Aliyah, right? She's going to live in Israel. So he said to me, because you held up that book, she's, she's moving to Israel. So I was walking home and I was thinking, okay, that's really nice. But I, what did I do? I just held up a book. What about the person who wrote the book? Right? That was the real effort. And then I thought, well, I know the person who wrote the book. What would she say? She would say, I just wrote the book. What about the person who lived the book? <laughs> but I also knew Reb Shlomo. And I'm sure Reb Shlomo would have said, what am I doing? I'm just saying over the Torahs that I learned from my Rebis. <laughs> and so it goes back to Avraham Avinu. And from there it goes back to Adam Rishon. And from there it goes back to Hashem. And so... So what's so awesome about being a human being is that you, if you choose to, and this is the choice, you were talking about joy, right? We do have free choice, sir. That's the amazing thing. We have free choice. That's the, that's the wonder. And Hashem 
even compares us to him based on one attribute, primarily, which is free choice, which is free choice. And um, that's what it means. That's the basic, that's the classic definition of what it means, that we were created in Hashem's image. Hashem doesn't have a body. He's not a human being. It's a ridiculous thought that he's a human being, right? When it says that we were created in his image, it means free choice. That's what it means. So Hashem gave us free choice. And by using that free choice to plug into the truth of the universe, the Torah itself, all of history, all of everything, even God himself flows through us. One of the things that I once noticed in the Gemara is, if you look, there's so many teachings that begin something like this. I'm making up this example, but something like this. Reb Yochanan said in the name of, you know, Rabbi Akiva. I don't even know if that actually works out historically, but let's just say that. So when I read that, I think, uh, okay, Reb Yochanan said it. It says, Reb Yochanan said in the name of Rabbi Akiva. But then I thought, wait a second, no. Reb Yochanan is just repeating what Rabbi Akiva said. But he gets front billing. You know, in Hollywood, that's, that's a big deal. You know, Reb, but Reb Yochanan, what did he do? He just repeated what Rabbi Akiva said. <laughs> so when you do a mitzvah, what are you doing? You're making yourself this porthole for godliness to come into the world. And then God gives you credit for it. Okay, have a good week.